Welcome to Open Curtain. While there are many technical challenges to creating great photographs, there are many life challenges to being an artist. Join me as I talk with working photographers about what they've had to do to support their passion and the complexity of creating work that matters using the most popular medium of today. Today we are going to be speaking with an accomplished photographer from Houston, Texas, who is known mostly for his work covering rural, blue-collar America. His photography was first put on the map by Aperture Foundation in 2013, when he was awarded the Aperture Portfolio Prize for Gray's The Mountain Sends. That body of work was published soon after as a beautiful monograph, which has become so popular that it is sold out of its second printing. Of course, I'm talking about Brian Skitmat. Since his first monograph, he has been widely recognized by the photography world and has expanded his career, traveling all over the world with featured exhibitions and consigned work while still maintaining time to create new work. He recently published a second book called Good Goddamn, which consists of a series of black and white photographs capturing his friend in Texas during his last few weeks as a free man. That book has been met with much praise and is now in its second printing. Brian is now working on a project called Vessels, which looks into the lives of vagabonds and hitchhikers navigating the brutal landscape of the American Southwest. Just this year, he received a grant from the Guggenheim Fellowship to finish that project. But due to the recent state of the world, he has had to put a pause on Vessels and is now with us today to share some of his experiences as an artist and what it has taken to get where he is now. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Open Curtain. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Congratulations on your new um, endeavor here with the podcast. So most of this podcast is supposed to be about how artists balance their art with how they make a living. And I'm curious how you, one, got into photography and two, were able to monetize that as a career. How did I get into photography? I was in college and I took a a photo course for an art credit and I really liked it. And there was some time during my undergrad when I was a photo major and I thought I'd be a photographer, but then I switched back to liberal arts. I I got a degree in history ultimately. And I thought I'd be a, a teacher. I thought I might teach high school or something, but I ended up deciding to apply to graduate school for photography and I don't know that I ever thought I was going to be a career photographer I just knew that I loved photography and I wanted to give it a try and then after I got out of grad school I was able to publish a book and then that turned into print sales and editorial and commercial assignments so I think my first book Graze the Mountain Sends was really something that set the path for me uh, in terms of it becoming a career and that getting attention so then I could do work and and keep the practice going. 
So it was just that project and probably a lot of luck and doing something that people responded to at the right time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of a mystery to a lot of people how to become a photographer, how to make it a living. And I think that there's no clear path. It's, it's, it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And you were able to make it work with your art for a while, but you recently also attained an agent, Claxton Projects, yeah, Tom, right? Tom Claxton, so, yeah. Yeah, tell us, you know, kind of how that's changed your life and, and, you know, how you make money with your photography. Um, it's, it's, it's still the same thing I was doing before because even whenever I was selling a lot of prints, I mean, I'm still selling a good number of prints, but it's still not enough to cover all the expenses I have in life. So I need to do editorial and commercial photography as well. So that's something I've been doing for years now. And it's just been broadened by the help of Tom and bringing in new commercial clients and just going up the bat for me and trying to make projects work and come to fruition. So it's, it's not a whole lot different now that I have uh, him in my corner. It's it's basically still balancing the art projects and doing the shows and books and things, as well as taking the magazine assignments and the occasional commercial assignments when those come along. And do you have any other hobbies or passions? Yeah, I love I love being in nature. I like hiking. I like going to the mountains. I like playing music. I I have an acoustic guitar. I play daily. What else do I love? Oh, I love watching movies, cinema books there's a lot to to life beyond photography i'd say yeah yeah and what do you think influences your photography the most i think movies yeah movies have probably influenced my work more than anything else and that isn't to say that i want my work to look cinematic but when i got pretty intellectually engaged in my late teens and early 20s it was through novels and films so that correlated with uh, a time in my life when I picked up a camera. So the, the movies I was watching at first were like foreign movies, like in Antonioni and Bergman. And, and then I started watching a lot of movies that were set near my home in, um, in Texas, in America's rural setting. So this is like Paris, Texas by Vin Vendors. I probably watched when I was 18 or 19 and really fell in love with it. Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick. Five Easy Pieces, The Last Picture Show. There was something about those movies and their depiction of the landscape that I loved so much and that was, it felt near to me. And then I I could do something like that. I mean, clearly not make these epic movies, but to channel that feeling and that view of of America in a certain way. So that really struck a chord with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you're working on a new series called Vessels, and it's kind of an open-ended project right now, and it's been on a big pause with the current state of the world. So yeah. tell us more about that. It's a project that I've been making for several years, a long-term documentary-style project on the highways of the uh, American West, mostly out in the desert in the Southwest. It is a mix of landscapes and portraits, and the portraits are mainly of travelers and hitchhikers and drifters and I usually meet my portrait subjects by picking picking up people who need rides and those are mixed in with landscapes of the desert 
an altered landscape, pictures of um, the highway um, with themes of fossil fuel consumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you actually just received a Guggenheim for that work. And, yeah, somehow. Uh, when was it? Back in May? I think they announced it in, yeah, in April. April, May, yeah. So, you know, how are you navigating that, um, not being able to create work right now? Are you, are you, well, first of all, tell us about the moment you found out that you got the Guggenheim, what you did, all that. Well, it's tricky with the Guggenheim because they don't just send you a letter that says you, you got it. Uh-huh. It's like... Um, I forget how they put it exactly, but you've been somewhat approved is basically what the first email says, where it's like you're you're in the running and the the board is going to likely approve you or something along these lines. And I think there are like more, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but you don't get that very kind of cathartic moment where you get the acceptance yeah, I mean, you at least they're being seriously considered. So there's yeah, that so it's incremental, factor. and by the time you get it, you've sort you sort of know that you got it, but you yeah. but they can still take it away if things don't work out. So it's an interesting thing. It's not like that moment at the like you know when they they open the envelope and the 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 award goes too. Like it just doesn't right. have that vibe at all. It's more like of a slow thing. Where it's like I think I probably got this, but I'm and not then sure. you, you, when you found out, it was a while till like. You couldn't tell anyone about it, right? Yeah, that's I mean, the whole thing. Like, it's like yeah. you, you basically know you have it, but then, yeah, you can't make it public. They say it's not for sure that you have it, so don't post anything on social media until... Well, and also the, don't post it before we announce yeah, it. Exactly. Too, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of this funny thing. Whereas in the past when I've won awards, it's just like, boom, and then it's out there. Right. Um, so there's more of a that that feeling of elation i guess that that you feel when good things finally happen in life but with this one it was it was a little different but i'm i mean still probably the biggest thing for me yet yeah i mean for a lot of photographers that is the biggest thing that can yeah but like in addition to getting the guggenheim it's also there's a feeling like shit i need to do something important with it so walk us through your process of you have an idea for a project how do you execute it? Do you photograph in a certain area? Do you go scouting for people to photograph or do you find them? Sure. I don't have, I don't have the longest track record in the world, so I don't know how great the advice will be. But when I started that project, I didn't have a really clear idea of what it was going to be or what it would become. I think it's always good to commence with an idea, but a vague idea that can change as you photograph. And I think it's good to photograph in short bursts, maybe, where you just go photograph a lot and then you let the pictures inform you. So you'll go somewhere, you have a a loose interest in a place or people, you go and shoot and then take an inventory of what you got and then go back out and let things get more specific as you move along. So tell us about your idea for Good Goddamn and who the person was you photographed, their story, and how you went about making that work. Good Goddamn started as just me making some portraits of my friend Chris 
he lives uh, out in Leon County, Texas. And ever since I met him, I wanted to take his picture, but I never felt an urgency to because I, I thought I could do it whenever. But there were characteristics he had that I was drawn to, just who he was, how comfortable he was with himself, the way he dressed, the way he, he moved, his mannerisms and everything called out to me. And then I found out he'd be going to prison with a five-year sentence. And I said, shit, I, got, I have to take pictures of him now because I won't be able to for a long time. And it just started out as, yeah, just wanting to take portraits of him. And then I looked at the pictures that I made after one day and said I wanted to shoot more. And then after two days, I felt something more significant was happening in the work. There was a feeling in the pictures, whether that was something real or something I imagined. To me, they had a psychological atmosphere that was pretty undeniable. And yeah, it was a few more days that I shot that work before he went in. What did he do? Why Why was he going to prison? Yeah, people ask that. I always kind of uh, avoid the crime uh, just because, I, I mean, I think in the book it doesn't need that information. But, I mean, he didn't, it wasn't a, a horrible thing. He It was, um, it was a charge of deadly conduct because he shot a gun near people. He wasn't trying to shoot them, but he shot a gun in the presence of people that he suspected were trespassing and poaching on this land he was looking over. Is that why your company is called Trespasser Books? Oh, no, that's totally unrelated. Oh, okay. Yeah. Trespasser came, well, Matthew and I, who I run it with, and, and Cody mm. too, Matthew and I talk about, like, if we're ever arrested, it'll be for trespassing to, t- to get pictures we want. To oh, take. okay. Like hopping barbed wire fences. Totally. And, um, yeah. Just because so much great photographic material is just out of reach. Um, oh, absolutely. And then it's also a nod to the Woody Guthrie song. There's like a third verse in This Land is Your Land that isn't often recited. It's about, you know, a sign on the land that says no trespassing, but on the other side, it doesn't say anything. And on that that side's meant for you and me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's that. But yeah, I mean, I don't think he should have gone to prison for that. Um, it was like a warning shot, basically from what I understand. And wow, in five years. The state of Texas just wants to put people away to profit off of them. Yeah. The whole prison system is a is an industrial Slave labor. complex. Yeah, I mean, they just, you know, politicians take money from prison profiteers and they make sure that they're at capacity. Right. Yeah. So, good goddamn, just started as portraits and turned into this reflection on the anxiety and the disquieted anticipation of what it means to prepare for prison, which is, I think, particularly poignant in Chris's case because he spent so much time outdoors, in the woods, under the stars, expressing freedom the way he knows how to do it. And it just felt particularly sad to me there was a big high wall there that tried to stop me sign was painted said private property but on the back side it didn't say nothing this land was made for you and me 
So in terms of photo book design, why did you decide to make Good Goddamn a black and white monograph after your your book Graze the Mountain Sands, which is all color? That's a good question. And I always struggle with questions about color versus black and white because so much of it to me feels intuitive based on the subject matter. The woods that I depicted in Texas in wintertime just, in my mind, required black and white. Something a little ineffable about the mood to me said black and white. So that was further reflected by the monochromatic book design, too. And where does the, the name Good Goddamn come from and Graze the Mountain Sands come from? Good Goddamn is just something I heard Chris exclaim at some point. He has a very unique voice. I remember him saying that. And it just relates to his personality and his rough and tumble characteristics and who he is. Uh, good Goddamn. Graze the Mountain Sends comes from a poem by Richard Hugo. He was a poet who lived in Montana for much of his life. And he had a poem called Degrees of Gray in Phillipsburg that was a huge influence on my work for that book. But he, that phrase, Gray's the Mountain Sends, appears in that poem. The principal supporting business now is rage, the hatred of the various grays the mountain sends. And that's what he was talking about, the small town Phillipsburg that has, that whenever he was there, it was a town that had really fallen from its former glory as a booming mining town. And that poem was a reflection on the the aftermath of it. Hmm. Now it's like evolving into a new economy of more tourism and proximity to the mountains and the wilderness. But when he was there in the 70s, it was like about the economic downfall and the uh, kind of bitter resentment that the narrator had while walking around town there. And did you find that poem from reading or, or did you stumble upon it and think, Oh, this would be great. I had already started the project. I was in Montana shooting mining towns and you know how it is when you get momentum going for a project, a lot of things kind of coalesce. So I started looking for, regional literature. I was reading a guy named Richard Ford who was who read about Wyoming in the area, Raymond Carver. He was farther west but had the same flavor of these working class small towns. And then William Kittredge and then Richard Hugo was a contemporary of all these guys. And when I found his poetry it just made instant sense to me to use it to to guide my work. He was addressing so many of the things I was interested in. And, um, and did that poem help you with your edit? For sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it guided me. Yeah. Yeah. It helped you focus that work a little bit more Yeah, and find what you were trying to say. Richard Hugo died in the eighties, but I felt like he was my (laughs) co-pilot. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, I was thinking about his work a lot. All of his poems were really great. And what I like so much about it is that he used the world outside to say something about interior life. 
So he would use descriptions of towns, of people, places, and they all related to painful interior life. And I thought that that was photographic in a way. Photography only has the surfaces of things. I do find a lot of similarities between poetry and photography, and I think that they're very closely related. Yeah. In terms of putting words together, putting images together to create something evocative. Yeah, totally. To find meaning. Totally. I agree with that. I mean, I recently came across a poem by Robert Frost that really resonated with me and the work I was making that I didn't really know I was making until I read that poem and it just all fell on me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. It's amazing how both photography and poetry can do that to somebody. Yeah. It it has a power for sure. And Hugo, the way he worked too, I think was similar to the way a photographer worked because he would go out into small towns. He'd go out into the world and he'd gather material. He'd hear what people oversaid in cafes and bars and things. Right. He wasn't just some yeah. guy in a cabin. Yeah, in he the wasn't woods. just sitting at home with the blank page. He would go out and engage and use what he found in the world mm. as material for his creative expression, which is so similar to what photographers do. Like we totally. use the world. I mean, at least photographers are who work the way I work. You know, I'm not in a studio or anything. I'm out engaging with the with the world. So yeah, I mean, the universe will give you things. Yeah, it gives you these gifts. Well, and, and it's not to say that photography needs to be like that of going out in the world and making things yeah because there is you know just like there are poets who do lock themselves in the cabins in Mm -hmm. the woods who make great poems yeah just like there are great studio photographers that would give me a lot of anxiety (laughs) like yeah here's here's an empty studio do something oh i know Uh, but i mean think about all the photographers who've been killing it in the studio who now have more time than ever yeah Oh yeah, to I make guess that's more work. I, I mean, guess I kind of envy that a little bit right now. I do too. Sometimes I envy painters who can just go to like they don't have to go deal with the world and travel and do all this. There's a part of that that's fun and exciting, but there's another part of it that's tiring, stressful. Yeah, so it'd be kind of nice just to have a have a studio where you go. It has nice light and you can paint or write. But I find that the possibilities of the world outside and the subject matter you encounter is just better than for me at least it's better than what i could imagine otherwise so yeah i try to cash in on that yeah so speaking of which we're really restricted in in being able to create the work that we want to create right now you know what have you been doing to keep yourself busy you know are you able to turn it off or put that that drive to get out there and make pictures? Are you able to put that aside? Well, going into 2020, I was really eager to go out West and take portraits of people, to take pictures of strangers, to make the work I make normally. But clearly that's not possible with the pandemic. So that's been put on hold and In the early stages of the economic shutdown and the stay-home orders, I was going through the archives. I was organizing my negatives and digital files, which is something that I put off for a long time. So I'm really happy to say that that is more or less in order. But I also wanted to shoot just to do something. I thought of 
safe ways to do that. And it, and it just resulted in me driving out to the countryside and taking pictures of the world just outside Austin on these, on these dirt roads. I found lots of things that moved me and it yeah. was, it was all right there. So pictures of Johnson grass and flowers, pictures of hmm. fence posts and old houses. And, right. And there's, there's so much, it's so it's so yeah. hard to do that though. I mean, that kind stuff's is, been yeah. done. You know, it's it's really hard to do that. I don't think there's any. Or, I don't think there's any subject matter that's like off limits. No, totally, and everything's been done. Yeah. Um, that you know, I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's how you do it. Yeah, it's how you do it, and then how you make it. You put a little bit of yourself into it too. You know. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of interesting, you know, because. You can look at your book, Grey's and Mountain Sons, and it's not the first book to be made about a small town mm-hmm. or people of blue-collar background. Yeah. But it is so successful. I mean, why do you think that is? I think it just has to do with the voice of, you know, the photographer. After after the book was published, all these different publications ran it, CNN and Time and all of these media outlets, and if I had tried to pitch that without the pictures first, I would have been totally rejected. Like, thank, right. yeah, thanks. We don't need a story about mining towns. And right. it just sounds so bad. So, yeah. But I think that's the case with a lot of things. Like the synopsis of anything always sounds yeah. kind of shitty. Like if you even were to pick your favorite movie or, or, or book, it, it, just try to explain it briefly. It doesn't sound good. So it's not, you know, what you to pick or even necessarily what you're saying. It's how you say it. Yeah. In some cases, it's hard to imagine what the product's going to be until it's put right in front of you, and then you can justify it later. Yeah. Kind of goes back to maybe, you know, how we both work Mm -hmm. is we create the images and then, you know, kind of form the the story around them. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's easier, but also it sets you up for more success. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the possibilities that the world offers you when you just go out and engage with it yeah you know not knowing is such a good thing Shot missing a mile away. The last shot got him, so to say, oh, the last shot got him. Oh, the last shot got him. Yeah. Do you ever listen to the Revisionist History podcast by Malcolm Gladwell? No, I haven't. The Malcolm Gladwell podcast has a has a, an episode about different types of creative people. He compares the the people who are just very prolific and who make work without thinking that much about it, but are able to just crank out these masterpieces. That would be Picasso, Bob Dylan. um, Warhol. Yeah, other people who just have this high productivity. And then on the converse side of that are people who think for a long time before they make the work and before they release the work. So that's Cezanne, Leonard Cohen. And he did this whole show about the dichotomy between those types of producers of art and culture mm-hmm. and how Leonard Cohen, it took him like years before the song Hallelujah was right. Yeah. And it wasn't well, even... that's his most popular song. But his version of it isn't even that good. 
It's after Jeff Buckley covered well, Jeff it. Jeff Buckley was just a you know voice of an angel and absolutely beautiful, but prodigy and everything. But like the evolution of that to to get to where it needed to be took a lot of dwelling on something, whether that was Cohen or anyone who did it subsequently. A lot of people would say. I wrote that song, I sang that song, I released that song, I'm done with it. Right. And I think that's what I push against a little bit. I'd rather dwell on something. I mean, maybe dwell has a negative connotation. I'd rather oh, live um, with something, explore something, feel it in every part of me, and then move on when I'm ready to move uh, on. Another example, musician-wise, Brian Wilson. Yeah. I mean, to a fault. I mean, like just, just would drive himself yeah, literally totally. crazy. And everyone around him. Yeah. So he was, he, Wilson, Cezanne, Cohen versus Picasso and Dylan. And yeah, I relate to the Cohens and the, yeah, and, I, I would too. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. that's, that's where I, yeah, I, I, even though I love Bob Dylan more than anyone on the planet, but, um, sure. But in terms of the kinship I feel with people who create, I'm, I'm like the slow, whatever works to get it right kind of deal yeah Yeah. because you listen to cohen and everything every syllable feels properly placed you know Mm -hmm. you could say the same maybe with a number of towns van zant songs yeah where it's just fucking perfect and bob dylan as much as i love him I, he, he didn't know what he was saying half the time. He was just like, it came from this wellspring of creative energy and he wasn't sitting around contemplating yeah. like the true well, they're more They're expression. more uh, writers and poets yeah. than musicians. I mean, yeah. a lot of people would say that Bob Dylan was one of the worst musicians of all time, but one of the best songwriters. I, yeah, I was on a kick recently because my buddy Travis hadn't really gotten into Bob Dylan, so I was making these playlists for him. And I put some of like some Instagram stories about Bob Dylan. I had people replying like great songwriter, horrible musician, right. horrible voice. Terrible voice, yeah. But I disagree. I think the imperfection of his voice is yeah. as beautiful as beauty can get. Right. It's like Daniel Johnston. Yeah. You know, just, he's the modern Bob Dylan in our generation. And you can see that in photography too. Like Robert Frank, for instance. He was like the Bob Dylan of photography. He was in that kind of Jack Kerouac beat generation. Yeah, half his pictures were soft, and yeah. the highlights were blown out. And yeah, it wasn't about perfection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in modern day to that, I would say Mike Brody. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's not a photographer. He mm-hmm. was never trained as a photographer. He shot on whatever mm-hmm. camera he had, and yeah, just documented what he was. Yeah, doing. And, and, and his precedent was, I don't know if it's Jacob or Jakob Holt, the uh, Danish guy. He did American Pictures, and it's title re-released as uh, United States, 1970, 60 or something, whatever. Mm-hmm. But he was just like a traveler. He was a European backpacker in the States, and he was reporting back to his friends in Europe, you'll never believe what's going on, what I'm seeing in this country. The social injustice, the economic inequality, the racism, all the fucked up things I'm seeing here. It's like crazy. Yeah, Robert Frank writes about that. And I think the story was that his friend sent him back some piece of shit camera. And he just started capturing everything on that. But And because of the imperfection... Yeah. Had like a some ring flash and some b- well, and bad lens. Because he didn't have the blinders on yet. Yeah. That we all do. 
You know, yeah, he we're thinking about art photography. Right. And it, it, it gets away from a purity. Yeah. We but he also wasn't used to the, to, to the culture and society that we are. Yeah. So when you go to a new place, it's impo- I think it's really important when you go to a, a new place is you start shooting right away. Yeah. And you shoot as much as you can because you're going to become a little bit more callous towards everything and then less interested mm-hmm. in that. It is a freshness. I think. Yeah. 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 Which can be dangerous too because sure. you go there and you you just feel like a kid in a candy shop and everything is interesting because yeah, everything is different. And you're naive and you can get yourself in trouble. Yeah. I mean, there's, all, there's lots of different ways that that can be a problem. Perspective is such an interesting thing to consider. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth The minor fall and the major lift The baffled king composing hallelujah So walk us through your day-to-day and what you what you have to do to support your art and maybe talk about your first paying job as a photographer my first paying job i don't remember i think it was for a software company locally where i just like did office culture portraits or something like that but the first big job i did was for dwell in 2011 maybe 2010 and i didn't really know that i could do the job and I'm, oh, and, that, and how did you get that job? Did, so an editor emailed me because she saw my work on the internet, and I told her I didn't want the job because I wasn't prepared to do like. A, oh, you didn't think you were qualified? No, I didn't think I didn't know how to light or do whatever for sure. a magazine of that. Because the the pictures in that magazine are slick, man. You know, yeah. they all look they look really good. And then she's like, "Just do what you do with these pictures of like buildings out and yeah, you don't need and, to light it. Yeah. You just repeat what you did." Yeah, she 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 talked me into it. I thought that was really special that she advocated for me. Yeah, she just said, you know, just whatever you do with your camera when you're out in these. Small towns just do it for the magazine, but of this really slick house. Yeah. So that worked out. Yeah, th- I guess uh, with the with that job, you probably had a sense of imposter syndrome, you know, where you're like, oh. I shot film on that job, and I f- shot so much film. Oh yeah. And then were you able to expense it all? I'm sure. I think I put so much on the invoice because oh, I was embarrassed. Oh, so guilty. <laughs> yeah. Or no, you were embarrassed. Oh yeah, I mean it was just a ridiculous number of sure. Sh- but that that was back when film wasn't even nearly as expensive as it is. Yeah, now. it was yeah. back when you get a box of portrait for like twenty bucks. Yeah. Oh, also on that job, the lab, which never fucks up. Oh no. Yeah, they they messed up the chemistry, so I, half of the negatives I took weren't usable. Yeah. Ugh. So it was it was a pretty um, interesting like first big magazine assignment. Wow. Uh, so I mean, it wasn't even that big of an assignment. It was just like a, a regular thing story. Took a lot of photos. Yeah. That job didn't lead anywhere. <laughs> so that job didn't lead anywhere. So no, I mean, like I did a job. I got paid. It was what it was, mm-hmm. but I don't Were think Were they happy it, or they just didn't hire yeah, you again? Yeah, it was or? fine. She was stoked to just, you know, I mean, sometimes people will rehire you. Sometimes they won't. I've never been hired right. for well since, but I don't know that I want to anymore because I don't really do architectural kind of stuff. But I was in grad school when I got that job. And then after grad school, I published Grazed the Mountain Sends and won the Aperture Prize. And that's when things started happening. It was that momentum that opened doors for print sales and 
And so after, and after all that, mm-hmm. the calls just started pouring in, or did you have to do a lot of the legwork? I, yeah, I don't, I don't really do that too much. The, okay. Because I know a lot of photographers set up meetings and go to New York and make little mailers and do a lot of yeah. marketing, and I've never really done that. Right. Uh, maybe I should. Maybe I could make more money. Uh, I don't think you need to. Live, live a better life. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've never really done that. I've just always been su- pleasantly surprised with stuff in the inbox. And they want you to do this or that. And yeah. now I have Tom Claxton on my behalf. So that's very helpful too. But let, I like to think that I let my work just do the talking. Just like what I do for my own sense of creative purpose, my books, my exhibitions. And if that translates to clients and that's, that's the best case scenario. Yeah. So in your case, you could say that your work being published did more for you than you could ever have done. Yeah. And that's what I tell, like, I I mean, I regularly get emails from people who are getting their start in photography Yeah, and they want to know how, to do it and sure there isn't a clear path so much and i think in most cases what i tell people like that is to put all of your energy into a project that you want to see in the world to take pictures that come from inside that like speak to who you are put your heart into it and make an ambitious, amazing project that can be a book or a nice exhibition or that like, you know, maybe some national publications will run and that can be the stepping stone to getting more work. Cause I mean, there are a lot of ways you can do it. I'm sure a lot of people shoot for the local newspaper and the local magazines and they move up to the national things. But I just find that if you have something that really speaks to who you are as a photographer, as an artist. It's a completed publishable project and it's like the, the best thing you can do. But that's, I, I say that because that's how it worked for me. And I know other people have different ways of going about it. Some people, they're like the people who just shoot yeah. a lot of assignments and can be kind of a chameleon in terms of like the different ways they shoot and different you gotta do what you, have. you got to do to survive. Yeah. You know, and, and, and who's to say that you can't do both of those things? Yeah. No, yeah. And, you know? and, and, and yeah, um, that's, that's reason. You have your I mean, passion projects and you yeah. have their, but it's, it's your nice headshot if, projects and your corporate, you know, totally. But it's uh, nice if your passion projects can set the course for yeah. your professional. Yeah. And, and but it takes time it and does. you have to hone your aesthetic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's what, P, and I, I, I went to grad school and it worked out for me because I grew and I turned into a better photographer because of that program. It was like a pressure cooker and you get in there and you have to grow and you have to put good work on the walls or you feel embarrassed. So for me, it was well, good. And you also feel like you wasted your time and money. For sure. Because so, there's a lot that goes into it. So if you're going to do it, take it seriously. But I got an email recently from a younger photographer who was asking about grad school and its benefits. And I told him grad school can be a really wonderful thing, but if you have all, you know, if you're going to go into debt because of it or spend all this money, you might just take a fraction of that money, travel somewhere interesting, put film in your camera, fuel in your car, 
and go make something really great and learn that way. Like just go make a project and see what you can do. Clearly that's not going to help if you're not a good photographer. <laughs> you can just go waste a year of your life and spend a lot of money making a project that isn't good and you don't have the feedback. But yeah, but grad school also isn't so much. A, a lot of you... shitty photographers go to grad school and stay shitty photographers. Exactly. Not everyone, but people do grad school for different reasons. And I think that if you're a pretty good photographer and you can do a great project, then maybe that's where you should put your time and energy instead of grad school. Cause I've never been asked by a photo editor or a gallerist. Right. Where'd you go to grad yeah, school? It just doesn't matter. It's like all about the strength of the work. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, but it's tough cause grad school can be so helpful for people that it works for, but yeah. it depends on who you are and where your work is. Yeah. But I wouldn't recommend that, like, if you're a photographer who's already making pretty great work, I wouldn't go spend yeah. thousands of dollars and have debt follow you around. So. Yeah, totally. You know, I struggled with the decision to go to grad school after undergrad. Because you didn't go to grad school, right? I did not. Where'd you, when you got your photography degree? I decided to go to... Artist Institute of Boston. I forgot. I, I yeah. forgot about that with you. you yeah, I went there for, for one year. I didn't okay. like it there. And so I transferred to RIT, which has just right. a great facility. Yeah. And, you know, Kodak is right there. Yeah. But the thought of going to grad school and spending more money and doing that all over again was really daunting to me. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of thought, you know, what could I do? You know, I, I kind of had that realization that, yeah, I could take this hundred thousand dollars that I'd spent on grad school with, you know, when you add up all, all mm -hmm. of it or, or more than that even, and just take a fraction of that and put it towards something else or take a job being an intern or an assistant to someone mm -hmm. and treating that as my grad school and basically just yeah. deferring a salary for a couple of years, mm -hmm. but making just enough to survive. Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to work at a photo lab mm -hmm. because, you know, what better thing to do than get to meet and work with all these great photographers right so do you have a favorite photo book it's an interesting question because some of my favorite photography isn't in books that honor the photography as much as they should if that makes sense so if i had like a if the house was on fire and i had to get some photo books off the shelf it'd be like robert adams books which aren't necessarily my favorite books of all time like in terms of how they're designed and printed. I think in recent years, there's been an evolution and a new standard that has been set for photo books and what they can be. Totally. Uh, or like August Saunders. Yeah, uh, I mean, like in his, the past, his photo volume. books were just pretty basic. Yeah. yeah. And now there's like a new world of phot photography books, and it's a, it's a wonderful golden age of photo books. But I still would say that my favorite photography is farther back in the past before there was this precedent for books being so great. If I had to choose a favorite book, it would be tough. I don't know if it's my favorite, but one I come back to a lot is A Criminal Investigation by Japanese photographer Watabe Yukichi. And that book is just fantastic. We talked earlier about cinema and that cinematic feeling. The photography in it feels very cinematic, but it doesn't feel constructed. It feels like a like like that kind of noir film, 
look. It reminds me of Kurosawa's Stray Dog, about a police officer trying to find his gun. And it has that really wonderful feeling to it. It's really beautiful. And then the physical aspects of it are really wonderful too because it feels like a case file with a band on it and it looks like it's like written on a typewriter in like a police precinct in Japan. So it's it's pretty wonderful. Um, Did you ever used to want to be a detective? I think, yeah. Doesn't every kid dream about yeah. that Have, with the magnifying glass? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Solving murders and yeah. thinking of questions that no one would think about and being the clever detective. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think cinema and television and photography isn't too different than that i can see that yeah finding that that special thing yeah yeah okay brian that wraps it up for this episode uh thank you so much for giving me your time and talking with me about all this you got it man thanks so much for having me on i really appreciate it it's good to talk to you she sees a bartender in a pool of blood Cries out, my God, just kill them all All right, everyone, that wraps it up for episode three with Brian Skipmat. Hope you enjoyed it. Join us next week for a talk with Janet Delaney. Have a good weekend.